Our text today is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there from the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask you to add your blessing now to the reading and the study of your holy word. Encourage us, convict us, grow us, Save the souls of those who need salvation. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you may now be seated. I hope you guys are finding genuine benefit in studying the gospel according to John. Has this been a good start, I hope? To me, John is one of the most glorious texts ever written. I want to remind you of a couple things about the book we're studying just to help us keep going forward. The book we call John in the Bible is a gospel. It's a biographical look at Jesus with a particular focus on his identity and the good news of his saving work. It reveals to us the fulfillment of the promises of God made for centuries throughout the Old Testament. And it shows us the way God brings to fruition the new covenant, God's perfect plan of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John, who's the author of this book, is one of the 12 disciples. And in this book, he never once names himself. Sometimes he is called in this book, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is the brother of James. John is one of the three disciples most regularly closest to Jesus. And John's gospel was written latest of the four gospels, probably near the end of John's life. I would guess, honestly, that it was in the decade of the 90s AD. And by that time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels had all been written. All three of those gospels look very similar. That's what the word synoptic means, is to look alike. But John's gospel looks different. It doesn't contradict the synoptics, but it does help us to see more than the other Gospels can tell us. And you have to wonder if John, maybe around 60 years after Jesus' resurrection, 
He just wants to be sure that the sweet memories that he has of Jesus that didn't make it into the synoptics, that they're recorded. For sure, God inspired John to write these things down. And why did he do it? Remember this. These are written to help you and me believe. John tells us that at the end of the gospel in in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Listen to me, friends. God wants you to, to believe. God wants you to know Jesus, his son. And so God has given you this great book as a gift that you might know his son and find life in his name. Do you know Jesus? And if you do, let me ask a different question. What do you think of when you think of Jesus? In your head, If you picture the face of Jesus looking at you, what expression is on his face? Do you picture a scowling face? Do you see disappointment in his eyes? Do you see somebody who puts up with you but is kind of tired of bailing you out of the jams you keep putting yourself in? Or when you think about Jesus, do you see a smiling face? Do you see someone who would have dinner with you? Do you see someone who cares about the little things you face? Do you see someone who finds joy in giving you grace? Jesus is God, holy, perfect, and majestic. Jesus is loving, kind, and good. And Jesus has a joy-filled and tender heart for weak sinners like you and like me. Jesus loves us. Not to put too fine a point on it, he doesn't just love us, but he likes loving us. He doesn't love us because we perform for him. He loves us because of who he is and because of his choice to love us. Now today, we are going to take a look at one of my single most favorite incidents in the Bible. It's a story only John tells us, and we're going to watch Jesus at the wedding feast at Cana. We're going to see his glory, we're going to see his power, and I hope you're going to see his love and his compassion too. So follow along with me, we're going to find five points and get a glimpse of of the glory of Jesus. So point number one, two words. Point number one, invite Jesus. Point number one is invite Jesus. There's your application point. Listen to verses one through three. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Three days after the ending of John chapter 1, 
we find that a wedding feast is taking place in Cana in Galilee. Chapter 1, Jesus is down south in Judea near John the Baptist, the Jordan River in Judea. But now, Jesus and the five disciples he's collected are headed back north to a town about nine miles away from Jesus' hometown. And if you've done much study of the Bible, you know that a wedding and its accompanying feast is an elaborate celebration. These feasts could last a week. Can you imagine a week long of wedding party? And the ceremony gets squeezed in there somewhere, but it's pretty much a whole week of feasting. And John tells us at this feast, the mother of Jesus was present. Isn't it interesting? When John speaks of Jesus' mother in this book, he never names her. Maybe that's to keep us from being confused because there are a lot of different Marys in the Bible. Or maybe it's a way to keep the spotlight off of Mary so that you can keep your focus firmly set on Jesus. But Jesus and his disciples, they're they're invited to the celebration too. And they go, okay, now stop here and think with me for a second. Because I don't think you were impressed by that. And I think you should have been. God bless you. So, when you, um, you see this party happening, Jesus attends. And like I said, I don't think that shocks you enough. This is gorgeous to see. Jesus and his disciples go to the wedding. They go to the feast. The party and the ceremony are things that the Savior is happy to be a part of. When you think about Jesus, do you picture somebody happy to go to a party with you? Do you picture somebody who would smile and laugh at the dinner table with you? Do you picture somebody that people wanted to have at the feast as opposed to that guy that people feel like they have to invite but they really hope he's busy? You've got to start letting this Shape your picture of Jesus if your picture of Jesus needs to be corrected. If you don't see somebody that you would want in your home, you don't see Jesus. And that Jesus would attend a wedding, that's a good reminder for us. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is God's invention. Only God has the right to tell us what marriage is and what it's not. I can remind you, we've studied this in Scripture over the last year anyway. Marriage is the covenant union of one man and one woman for life. Marriage is a beautiful reminder of the love and the commitment of God and God's people. But then we get verse 3, and there's a problem. The wine ran out. Now, to you and me, that might seem like a little little small problem, an embarrassing moment. How many of you all are married right now? How many of you are not? That should be the rest of you. Um, Did your wedding day go perfectly? Or did anything funny happen? How many had something funny happen at their wedding day? Yeah, right? 
And don't even start talking to me about wedding rehearsals. I hate wedding rehearsals with a passion. Oh, bad things happen at wedding rehearsals. But little things happen, and they're funny, right? Like, oh, you tell the kids later, oh, when we got married, the flower girl didn't want to drop her petals. Or the ring bearer ran off with the pillow, and we had to chase him down. Or, or the best man almost forgot the ring, or, or the minister was, married, was wearing, like, white socks under his suit, you know? And it's just funny, and they're all no big deal. That is not what's happening when the wine's running out. In the first century culture of Israel, if the wine runs out on you at a wedding feast, it is a social nightmare. It could give the couple a bad reputation in their town, a shameful reputation in their town that they might not overcome for years, if ever. Some commentators would tell you, by the way, since the bridegroom is to provide this feast, and since people have to actually work hard to get the week away so they can come to his feast, the groom could be open to a lawsuit for failing to meet his obligation to the celebrants. So y'all, this is a big deal that they're out of wine. And then Jesus' mother, she's there at the wedding feast, and Mary sees the problem, and she goes to Jesus, and she tells him what's going on. Now, how can she do that? Maybe Mary was a relative. Maybe she was kind of working to help keep things going at the party. We don't really know why. What we know is this. Mary goes to Jesus, tells him about the problem. And I want you to notice right here, before we keep finish up here, in this point, Mary doesn't tell Jesus what she wants him to do. Mary doesn't tell Jesus to do anything at all. And we have no reason to believe that Mary is asking Jesus to perform a miracle. Why do we know she's not asking Jesus to perform a miracle? Because Jesus has never, up until this point in his life, performed a miracle. So why would you ask somebody for a miracle you didn't know did miracles? Mary does not think she has authority over Jesus. She doesn't think she can command him. She's just telling him what's going on. Here's what we can see in the text, friends. Mary knows the character of Jesus. She knows the goodness of Jesus. She knows the kindness of Jesus. She knows the trustworthiness of Jesus. Mary knows that Jesus is a caring, capable, helpful person. And so she lets him know, oh, there's a problem. And now, before we go on in the story... Let's stop and let's make the application point. I told you already, right? You've heard us read the whole passage. You know Jesus is going to help. But let me point out to you this. Jesus was invited. Jesus was invited to the feast and he came. Mary invites Jesus into this situation and he will help. In your life and in my life, we need Jesus. So I'm going to remind you, Christian, invite him. Invite Jesus to walk with you through your day. In the morning, when you get up, when you get out of your bed, take time to invite Jesus to be with you as you face the day to come. Now, don't get me wrong. He's going to be with you regardless. But it is so much better for you. It is so much more honoring to Jesus Christ for you to invite the Savior to accompany you into the difficult world that you will face. 
And if you're hearing my voice and you don't yet know Jesus, invite him. He invites you to come to him and find life and forgiveness. You invite him to be your savior. He's your only hope to stand before God. Believe in Jesus, turn from sin, invite him to be the Lord over your life. Now let's watch and see what happens next. I think it's interesting. Point number two, trust Jesus. Point number two, trust Jesus. Verses four and five. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, y'all, verse 4 is a verse you could understand, you could misunderstand if you don't have an understanding of the culture and if you don't know what Jesus is about to do next. Because it really looks like Jesus rebuffs Mary. But we're going to see that's not really what he's up to. First of all, Jesus calls Mary woman. Children, I will not suggest you try that to your mother today. <laughs> right, ladies? Yeah, uh-uh. Listen, when Jesus called Mary woman, he is a 30-year-old man who is actually distancing himself from Mary's authority. He's not being disrespectful, as it might seem in our culture, but it's not mom, it's not mother. It is closest to ma'am if you can take the southern culture out of calling somebody ma'am, if that would make sense to you. And the Lord here, when he does this, he's helping you and me know, however Jesus is going to respond to Mary here in this event, he is not doing her bidding. He is not under her authority. But if you think woman sounded strong, the question, what does this have to do with me? That is far stronger a phrase than is Jesus calling Mary woman. A question like that, what have I to do with you? What, what have you to do with me in the Bible? That is something that, that is often spoken between enemies or adversaries in the Bible. Demons talk that way to Jesus. Remember the demons saying, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of, Naz- or, or son of David, or Jesus of Nazareth? They, they, they don't want him around. King David actually spoke that way to, to, to people who were causing him trouble. What have I to do with you, O oh, you sons of Zeruiah? And as you saw with the word woman, Jesus is making sure that Mary understands that whatever's happening here, it's not happening on her command. He is not being nasty. He's not being petty. He's just making sure, and the Lord is making sure that we all know what's happening here. God is helping us to know that we approach God through Jesus. We do not approach God through Mary as a mediator. Then Jesus says something really unique. My hour has not yet come. All through the gospel according to John, we're going to see Jesus repeatedly talk about his, quote, hour. My hour hasn't yet come. Or later it says, he knew his hour was at hand. This is the first hint, friends, in John's telling of the gospel that Jesus is walking toward one particular moment. One particular task. Jesus' hour is the moment when Jesus would ultimately be glorified and his father ultimately glorified when Jesus would give up his life to save the souls of the children of God. 
Jesus here is telling Mary, he's saying, telling Mary, it's not time at this moment for my ultimate godly glory to be revealed as I give up my life for the saving of people's souls. Now, I have no idea if Mary understood what Jesus was saying. But I will tell you this, and I want you to catch this, because I don't want your picture of Jesus to be distorted here. Mary is not in the least put off or discouraged by Jesus' response. Look at how Mary responds in verse 5. Not discouraged, not troubled, not sad. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. So far from being offended, something about the way Jesus spoke, something about the character of Jesus, something about the fact that Mary knows her son and she knows his goodness and she knows his kindness and she knows Jesus is going to do something, whatever needs to be done. And she knows it's going to be a thing that he does because he chooses to, not because his mom told him to. So this is where we're going to make a second application point before we go further. Trust Jesus. Mary trusted Jesus right here. Even when Jesus let her know it's not time for his glory to be fully revealed, even when he makes it clear that he is not under her authority here, Mary trusted the fact that she knew Jesus would do something to take care of the situation. And then Mary turns to the servants And she tells them to trust him too. She says, do whatever Jesus says. By the way, how's that for counsel for your life? Do whatever Jesus says. I could give you that and send you home, but I won't. We need to trust Jesus too because Jesus is good. He is mighty. He will always, 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 always do what is best. So may we trust him. May we never fear this world or its hardships. May we not lose heart even when things are painful. But may we trust Jesus and do everything he says in his word. Third point. You still with me? All right. Third point. Obey Jesus. Obey Jesus. Did you get it, Owen? Okay. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there from the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So probably you can picture a well in the courtyard at the house, six stone water jars there. John tells you to know what they are, what they're made of, how big they are. The Jews would have valued these stone water jars for ceremonial washing because the stone jars are safe from being ceremonially unclean, whereas like a wooden bowl would actually take on uncleanness according to the Levitical law. And in total, these jars would have held anywhere from a total of 120 to 180 gallons of water. And they were for ceremonial washing. I think that's interesting here. You don't want to skip this too quickly. Here in John chapter 2, John is going to, on occasion, show you the life and work of Jesus in contrast with the temple or the Old Testament law. 
really chapters 2, 3, and 4, we see Jesus juxtaposed against the Jewish law system in the temple. Now, Jesus never violates the law of God. He only fulfills the law of God. But as we watch what Jesus does, faithful readers are going to be able to see that Jesus is greater than the law. Something better than the law has come. Something greater than the ceremonial system is in play. Something greater than the temple is here at work. The fact that Jesus does what Jesus does on this day using ceremonial water jars, what water jars used for ceremonial washing, that will serve to help us see that Jesus is coming to both fulfill the law and accomplish something much better, much greater than anything the Old Covenant had to offer. The New Covenant fulfills the Old and is superior to the Old. And around those water jars are the servants. Now, quick side note. You guys play along with me here. The word for servants there is the Greek word diakonos. You want to guess what, that, what we get our word from for that? Even if, even if I said that poorly, you get it, right? It's the word for deacons. So what are deacons? The folks that serve the wine at the party. That's what the word means right there. In the church... We are deeply grateful for our deacons. As the word implies, the word deacon is a servant. A deacon in the church is a man who has given himself to serving the needs of the body. Deacons take care of needs, especially physical needs in the, in the church, so that the elders are freed to spiritually lead and care for the body. Guys, I could never do what we have to do to have our worship services here without the deacons. I could never meet the care needs of the body without our deacons. And I want to encourage you, you should be grateful to God for our deacons, for their wives. Let them know that you appreciate them, that you are eager to help them do their role because they are absolutely treasures in our church. Now, in this case, the word deacon, like I said, it, apply, it, it applies to those who are the waiters serving the wine at the wedding feast. Because deacon means servant. And here, Jesus gives these servants a curious set of instructions. Imagine again, you're at a party, they're out of wine. That's the problem. So Jesus says, fill those jars over there to the brim with water. Now, take some of that water out and take it to the master of the feast, the man in charge of keeping the banquet running. Now, leaving those instructions as they stand, that's crazy. You guys see that that's nuts, right? The master of the feast needs wine to keep the feast going and to protect the couple from social disaster. Jesus says, fill those jars with water and draw some out and take that to the master of the feast. Does that sound like a plan to save the day to you? It sounds like a plan to be called a fool. It sounds like a great way to lose your job, is what it sounds like. All we see so far is that the servants did what they were told. And before we move on, Let's make a real simple point of application. Obey Jesus. Christians, if we love God and love God's word, we are going to hear God's instructions in scripture. We're going to have God tell us how to live and how to think. And in the world we live in, 
following the instructions of the Lord are going to seem crazy. Following Jesus might get you ridiculed, yes? Following Jesus might cost you your job. Following Jesus might ruin your family relationship. Following Jesus might get you jailed. Following Jesus might get you killed. But God's ways are not the ways of the world. And as we live in this world, we're going to find ourselves regularly on an ever-increasing basis at odds with the ways and the values of the world. And we will not be able, if we follow Jesus, to applaud the behaviors and the practices that the world around us celebrates. If we follow Jesus, we're not going to be able to do the things that the world says people can do. The world says taking the life of a baby in its mother's womb is simply an expression of a woman's rights. We have to disagree. And we should do what we can to oppose it. When the world says that marriage can be a union of any number of people for any amount of time, of any number of genders, we have to disagree. It's not hate. It's just we cannot agree because we know God has defined marriage. When the world acts like your job or your physical safety or your social status is more important than you worshiping the Lord, you've got to beg to differ. When the world says there's no difference between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, that there's no role to play differently in the home, we have to say it's different. And when we obey Jesus Christ and when we tell the truth and when we call the world to repent and believe to be saved, we are going to find ourselves on the outside of many groups in our society. God's ways are not the world's ways. Following Christ is a costly thing. But dear friends, hear the call to be like these faithful servants. Even if it seems crazy, obey Jesus. And thankfully here we're going to see something really glorious come of what Jesus told these servants to do. Point number four. Honestly, to to make a point here, the best thing I can say is praise Jesus. I think you'll see why you want to praise Jesus. Verses 9 to 10 say, When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is a beautiful picture. Imagine the scene. Imagine Jesus watching it unfold from the back of the room. Nervous servants carrying a pitcher to the master of the feast. They know they just went through an exercise in which they filled stone jars with 180 gallons of water and then drew it out. Now they're going to give a sample to the master of the feast who is in need of wine. But then in the cup of the master of the feast poured out of those pitchers is wine. Real wine, good wine. 
The man tastes the wine and he's amazed. He calls the bridegroom over to tell him that he's done something odd. You're supposed to serve the good stuff first. Then when everybody's had a little bit to drink, when, there's, when their taste is dulled by the wine and the food and just the, the fun of the party, serve the cheap stuff then. But the good stuff just came out. Quick observation here as a side note, but I think we need to think about this just for our doctrine, and I ask us to be gracious and loving with this. The word, come back to Jesus. This is real wine being served at this wedding feast that Jesus has made from the water. There is no grammatical warrant whatsoever to pretend that the wine that the master of the feast tasted was not true wine. In fact, there are many clues in the text that tell you that this is absolutely real wine. And the reason I point that out to you is there are some who oppose the drinking of alcohol in all circumstances, and they've tried to make an argument to say, well, the wine that's here at the feast could not have been fermented. And the argument that they make doesn't have anything to do with the scripture. It just has to do with them saying, well, the wine has to be unfermented grape juice because it would be morally wrong for Jesus to have made actual wine. And I just want to say that's not an argument. That is a conclusion based on somebody's prior ideals. Now, people of that era definitely would dilute their wine with water to make it less strong. But the wine these people drank was real wine, and the wine at the feast was real wine. But let me also say this, so we're really careful here. The Bible always, unequivocally, opposes drunkenness. If you drink alcohol to the point that your senses are dulled and you're not in control of your faculties, that is always going to be you sinning against God. And I would suggest to you that if you have a problem with being tempted to drink to the point of drunkenness, you should not drink at all. Honestly, there's a lot of good reasons a person might have for not drinking alcohol, right? You guys agree with me on that? A lot of good reasons that could be out there. Maybe somebody's tempted to go too far. Good reason not to drink. Maybe you're around people who are troubled by alcohol. Maybe, they, maybe you're around people that, you, you know, this, it's not good to drink with these folks. Maybe you're afraid for your health. Maybe your family has a history of alcohol abuse. Maybe drinking is, certain countries you could live in, it is against the social fabric of the culture and it would be a bad, it would be negative for your ability to share the gospel. Any of those are fine reasons to forego your perceived right to have a glass of wine. But we cannot and we must not, if we're going to be faithful to the word, pretend that the word of God forbids utterly a thing that the Bible does not forbid. God cautions against drunkenness, but God never says all drinking of alcohol is sin. And there are many, many places in Scripture where God speaks very positively about wine and other types of drink. It's like good food. It's like fun recreation, alcohol is a thing that should only be enjoyed by moderation, in moderation, by those whose consciences before the Lord would allow. And it is inappropriate for one Christian to judge another Christian for his or her standard here. 
we will always call each other to be holy and avoid drunkenness. Always. But we should not tell other believers all drinking is sin when the Bible does not say that all drinking is sin. So again, never drink to drunkenness. Never drink to the detriment of your health. Never drink around those who are going to be offended or led into temptation by your choice. But don't feel that the Bible forbids drink in moderation. And don't look down on those who've made a different choice than you regarding the issue of alcohol. Okay, that was a little side point, but this seemed like a good spot to point that out because we're talking about a party in wine here. Now, let's come back to Jesus and our application. I asked you to imagine Jesus observing the servants taking wine to the master of the feast. Back, maybe back of the room, right? Here's what I want you to want to ask you. I want you to think about this. What look do you imagine is on Jesus' face as the servants take the wine to the master of the feast and he tastes it? What look do you picture on Jesus' face? Is it this? Not really, right? Do you picture a frown, a scowl? An aloof, uncaring face? No, you don't. There's no scowl. There's no frown. There is joy on the face of the Savior. There has to be. Subtly, but gloriously, the Savior has met a tremendous need of this couple. He's kept them from being disgraced in their society. He's given them a gift. He's done them a kindness. And I will not believe that the Savior had any other expression than a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eye. Our joyful, glorious, giving Savior has loved people well. And I'm fully convinced it brought Jesus joy. So let me ask you, what do you want to do when you see a sweet, loving, powerful Savior doing loving things? I believe that should make you want to praise Jesus. Thank him for being good. Praise him for his mighty power that could turn the molecular structure of water into that of wine. Think about the smiling face of the Savior and let it lead you to worship him. And then we're going to wrap up here with the actual point of this encounter in point number five. Point number five, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first, quote, sign or miracle that Jesus has performed. In John, there are going to be seven major signs from the Savior. And each one of those signs will show us his goodness and his glory. He did more. We know that. He did more miracles. We know that. John gave us these particular ones because he wanted to help you believe in and he wanted to help you love Jesus. And Jesus did this sign And he let a glimpse of his glory out for his disciples to see and it helped them to believe and it ought to impact you and me in the same way. What's the glory and the magnitude of this almost hidden miracle? Well, think about this. Jesus Christ, by his power, 
transformed water into wine. There he showed that he has power over the very substance of creation. That's pretty good, right? Second, Christ created a huge quantity of wine. As much as 180 gallons. Okay, if you are walking down the aisle in the store and you see the average bottle of wine, that is 750 milliliters. There are five of those in one gallon. Thus, we could say here that it is safe to, safe to guess that Jesus created between 600 and 900 bottles worth of wine for this family. Third, the quality of the wine that Jesus made was excellent. It shocked the master of the feast that this wasn't the first wine out. So even if, even if all the, 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 the wine that was at the feast, even if it had all been there, the guy said, no, this is the good stuff. This is the best. This is the highest quality. Bring it first. And by the way, there's no reason to believe that all that wine... 600 bottles, 900 bottles, that that would be needed for this feast. But now, you know what? This family that didn't have enough money to have enough wine to start, they now have enough, uh, they've been given by Jesus a generous and extravagant wedding gift. Jesus, friends, this is what I want you to see, and I'm not getting it out the way I want to, but Jesus is a giving, loving powerful, generous giver. What does God want you to do with this? He wants you to use it to see Jesus, to see Jesus' power, to see Jesus' joyful kindness, to see his generosity. And like the disciples, he wants you to believe in and glorify Jesus. So Christians, I want this portion of John's telling of the gospel to make you love and trust Jesus more. Let it help your picture of Jesus be that of a loving, kind, generous, powerful Savior. Let it lead you to invite Jesus and trust Jesus and obey Jesus and praise Jesus and believe in Jesus more and more. And if by some reason you're hearing this and you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, be drawn to the Savior from this glimpse of his glory. He is good He is loving, he is powerful, and he offers you the greatest gift of all. He offers you the gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life in his presence. So I urge you, turn from sin and trust in Jesus today. Let's pray together, friends. Heavenly Father, as we have seen this picture. My real heart, Lord, is that you would use this picture despite my inadequacies, despite anything that would take our minds away. Use this picture, I pray, to help us see and know and love Jesus more. God, this is so good. It's so good. You are so kind. You are so giving. 
You are so extravagantly generous and so full of joy. Adjust our picture of you. Adjust our picture of your son that we might know you best and believe in you more. That's my prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.